this is Jose Figueroa with an Approved Workman, where we are rightly dividing the word of truth. Welcome to another time of Bible study. I am glad that you're here as we open up God's word one more time. Our current series is Growing Grace, Growing Knowledge, a study of the book of 2 Peter. If you're new to this Bible teaching ministry, here is how you can learn more about our work. You can start by visiting at our website, www.anapprovedworkman.org. That's anapprovedworkman.org. On the website, you can learn more about the purpose of this ministry, our approach to Bible study, and also review our statement of faith. You can also listen to previous episodes of our current series on 2 Peter or any episodes from previous Bible study series we have completed. You can also subscribe to the podcast, which is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and other podcast directories. You can also connect with an approved workman on social media. On Instagram, we are at an approved workman. On Pinterest, we are an approved workman. And our Facebook page is facebook.com slash an approved workman 215. Finally, you can also subscribe to our video channels to ensure you don't miss any episodes of the video versions of our lessons. These are available on either YouTube or Rumble. Today, we are in lesson number one in the series, Growing Grace, Growing Knowledge, from the book of 2 Peter. This is volume number two of our series, Strangers and Pilgrims, a study of 1 and 2 Peter. The lesson is titled, Called to Abundant Living, Part 1. Our focus passage is 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 4. Please find your way in your Bible to that passage. In chapter 1 of 2 Peter, Peter reminds believers that they have been granted everything they need for life and godliness. How would you compare living water versus dead water? In this world where many places lack clean running water, it is something to think about. I asked ChatGPT about it. Here's what it came back with. Quote, living water and dead water are terms used in different contexts, and their meanings can vary depending on the specific field or belief system in which they're used. Here, ChatGPT continues, I'll explain the common interpretations of these terms. First, living water. In a natural context, living water typically refers to fresh, flowing water, such as a river or stream. It is often associated with clean, unpolluted water sources that support aquatic life and ecosystems. These waters are considered living because they teem with various organisms, including fish, insects, and other aquatic creatures. In some spiritual or metaphysical beliefs, living water can have a more symbolic or mystical connotation. It may represent water that is considered spiritually pure or imbued with special properties. For example, in some religious traditions, living water may be associated with purification or 
healing rituals. What about dead water? In a natural context, dead water is often used to describe stagnant or still water, such as a pond or a section of a river or lake with pure circulation. This type of water can be low in dissolved oxygen and may not support a wide range of aquatic life. It may also be prone to pollution and the buildup of sediment and organic matter. In some mythologies or folklore, dead water can take on a more mystical or ominous meaning, representing water that is cursed, tainted, or associated with negative forces. It is important to note that the specific meanings and interpretations of these terms can vary significantly and they may have different connotations in different cultures, belief systems, or scientific contexts. Additionally, the use of these terms can be metaphorical or symbolic in literature, art, and other creative works, so their meanings may be open to interpretation." End quote. So that's what the artificial intelligence gives us in terms of comparing living water versus dead water. When you think of those images, what comes to mind? To me, dead water is a picture of stagnation, of uselessness. Nothing good comes from it. In the other hand, living water is a picture of abundance, of strength. Which one would you like to have in your life? In our previous episode, we cover our introductory lesson for the study of 2 Peter. The Apostle Peter wrote two general epistles that we know as 1 and 2 Peter. The audience for this second letter is the same as in 1 Peter. These were Christians who, like Israel of old, were scattered throughout the world, though the readers of this epistle were predominantly of Gentile rather than Jewish background. Peter, who walked with Jesus, lived for Jesus, and died for Jesus, encourages them and all believers as we live as strangers and pilgrims in this foreign and hostile territory. The Apostle Peter wrote to a group of people under heavy persecution and suffering. This opposition came from the outside, unbelievers and also the Roman government. This second letter is a reminder of the truth of Christianity as opposed to the heresies of false teachers. This opposition was coming from the inside. Peter tells him that, that by focusing on the truth of Scripture, believers will be able to grow spiritually and stand firm against false teaching. If you missed that previous episode, I encourage you to listen to the podcast or watch the video of that lesson. In today's lesson, we begin in earnest our study of 2 Peter. As I mentioned a moment ago, we will focus on chapter 1 of 2 Peter. In this section of the letter, Peter is going to remind his audience again of their great redemption in Christ and remind them also of the strong foundation of their faith and the truth of God's Word. In between those affirmations, he is going to encourage them to not stand pat, to not grow stagnant. No, they need to continue to grow in grace and knowledge. We, believers, have been called to abundant living. We have been saved, but we're not expected to just stay there. God 
once more for us. We are supposed to be growing more and more each day into the image of Jesus Christ, as Paul tells us in Romans 8, 29 and 30. In this chapter, Peter is going to discuss how God accomplishes that in our life. In his Bible commentary on 2 Peter, Dr. Warren Wiersbe provides us with a great introduction to this first chapter in 2 Peter. He says, quote, In his first epistle, Peter emphasized the grace of God, but in this second letter, his emphasis is on the knowledge of God. The word know or knowledge is used at least 13 times in this short epistle. The word does not mean a mere intellectual understanding of some truth, though that is included. It means a living participation in the truth in the sense that our Lord used it in John 17.3. This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. End quote. Here's our lesson outline and goal for our teaching from 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, Call to Abundant Living. Uh, we have three divisions first, Call to Full Lives, verses 1 through 4, then Call to Fruitful Lives, verses 5 through 11, and then Call to Firm Lives, verses 12 through 21. My goal for the teaching from this chapter is to encourage believers to remember that because of our calling in Jesus Christ, we have everything we need to live full, fruitful, and firm lives. Again, the goal for the teaching from 2 Peter chapter 1 is to encourage believers to remember that because of our calling in Jesus Christ, we have everything we need to live full, fruitful, and firm lives. Today, we will focus only on our first division, Call to Full Lives, verses 1 through 4. Let's get started. Simon Peter, a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. For his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. Through this he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world on account of lust. 2 Peter 1, 1 through 4. In verse 1, Peter opens the letter by first establishing his credentials as a bond servant or slave and as an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word for bond servant is the Greek word doulos, and the Bible sense lexicon defi defines it as a slave, a person who is legally owned by someone else and whose entire livelihood and purpose was determined by their master. 
And that terminology, it shocks our sensibilities in our day and age because of the connotation that we have and all the horrors of slavery throughout the world's history. But in that economy, in the Roman economy, that understanding there was slavery was part of that economy and that understanding of what a bond servant was a slave that's how the apostles saw themselves peter paul james john and the rest of them they saw themselves as slaves of jesus christ to them that meant that their allegiance their believing loyalty was to him and no other their lives furthermore were not their own their own their lives belonged to Jesus Christ. He provided them with their purpose. Peter wanted his audience to be reminded of this perspective. But he also wanted them to know that and reminded that he was not only a bond, a bond servant, a slave of Jesus Christ, he was also an apostle of Jesus Christ. And an apostle was an envoy of Jesus Christ commissioned directly by him or by other apostles Normally someone who has been taught directly by Jesus and who is invested with the authority to speak on his behalf. As we saw in our introductory lesson, Peter walked with Christ and lived for Christ. He was chosen by Christ to be one of his apostles, one of his sent ones. Peter was unquestionably the leader of the twelve and of the church at Jerusalem in the early days. He preached that great first sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, and it was through him that the gospel first reached both Samaritans and Gentiles. You go back to Acts 8, he and John are sent to confirm what's happening with the Samaritans. And then in Acts 10 is the meeting with Cornelius, the Roman centurion. So therefore, as Peter opens this second letter, he is reminding the audience that he's writing with the authority of one who is fully committed to Christ, and fully commissioned by Christ. Who are the recipients of this second letter? Well, it is the same audience of 1 Peter. As mentioned earlier, this is a primarily Gentile audience. In his first letter, Peter names five specific locations where they were located. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, uh, comprising the western half of what we know as modern-day Turkey, and also Bithynia. These were all Roman provinces in Asia Minor, north of the Taurus Mountains. And Peter tells us that they share the same faith granted by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, while salvation is from the Jews, it was not for the Jews only. As we saw in our study of First Peter, the church, the new people of God, includes both Jews and Gentiles together in the body of Christ. Peter continues, so how was this saving faith received or obtained? It is a gift from God, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Peter tells us that it is by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is a lot packed in that phrase. First, the righteousness that brings salvation is from God. Look at Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, 
the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous one will live by faith. And this righteousness from God we have been imputed with is the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him who knew no sin to be seen in our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is what theologians call the great exchange. We have no other way to stand before God, only in the righteousness of Christ. He is the only way of salvation. There is no alternative path. But also notice something else here. Peter calls Jesus Christ our God and Savior. That's one of the most clear, unmistakable declarations of Jesus' deity in the entire New Testament. In the Old Testament, God is frequently named as the only one who can save. Isaiah 43, 11, Isaiah 45, 21. Ah, but you see, Jesus' very name means Yahweh saves. Both Joseph and Mary were told to name him Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, 20 and 21, Luke 1, 30-37. Jesus, he is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the word that was with God in the beginning, and he was God. You see, Jesus is not only the Savior, not only the Son of God, he is God. In his commentary on Second Peter, Dr. Wiersbe speaks about why Jesus is our Savior. He says, quote, It requires little insight to see how the title Savior applies to our Lord Jesus Christ. He is indeed the great physician, who heals the heart from the sickness of sin. He is the victorious conqueror who has defeated our enemies, sin, death, Satan, and hell, and is leading us in triumph. He is God and our Savior, our Lord and Savior, and the Lord and Savior. In order to be our Savior, he had to give his life on the cross and die for the sins of the world. Now, in verse 2, Peter offers the traditional greeting of grace and peace. He wants them to have it in abundance. Uh, another translation might read, multiply to you. Again, it's the idea of abundance of lavishness. This is almost the same greeting he used in his first letter. Go back to 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. And this was, of course, we have seen this as we have studied different uh, epistles in the New Testament. This was the familiar greeting of grace. Karain, the Greek greeting for rejoice or grace, and peace, shalom, uh, the Hebrew greeting. And this was a common greeting in that day, but in the New Testament, it carries an added meaning. Grace, of course, is God's unmerited favor to us. And because of grace, we have peace with him and from him in our, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Every single one of Paul's 13 epistles includes a form of this greeting, as an important reminder of our great blessings in Christ. The Apostle John also uses the same greeting in his letters. In this second letter of Peter, however, he highlights an additional element. He wants that 
grace and peace to be multiplied to them in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. This will be a recurring theme in this epistle, the theme of knowledge. The Greek word for knowledge is used here is epignosis, which implies uh, personal recognition, coming to understand something clearly and distinctly or as true and valid, often with a personal acquaintance that necessitates a positive or negative reaction. That comes from the Bible sense lexicon. You see, this is not just casual knowledge about someone. No, this is intimate, personal knowledge, which leads to a decision on a person. In this case, Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said that knowing him and God in this way is the very definition of eternal life. Look at John 17, 3. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Without Jesus Christ, you cannot know God. You cannot come to God. Without knowing Jesus Christ, you cannot experience God's grace and peace. And without Jesus Christ, you cannot be saved. Moving ahead to verse 3. However, if you're a believer, if you're in Christ, everything changes for you. Peter now tells his audience that because of God's divine power, each believer has been granted everything they need for life and godliness. That is a monumental statement. How does that happen? This is done through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. There is that concept again, knowledge of Him. This is what the Apostle Paul calls for in Philippians 3, 8 through 10. It's all about Jesus. It's about all about knowing Jesus. As we mentioned in that introductory lesson to 2 Peter, a big issue Peter is addressing is the threat of false teachers, particularly teachers of Gnosticism. And to combat that false teaching, we need true knowledge. Knowledge of God, knowledge that comes through Jesus Christ, there is no other way. In his commentary on Second Peter, Dr. R.C. Sproul comments on how that true knowledge stands against the false teaching of the Gnostics. He says, quote, Over against the heretical view of knowledge, Peter talks about true knowledge, the knowledge that comes from God, which is, perhaps, one of the most important if not the, the most important grace that he disposes upon his people. God gives us knowledge that comes to us from himself. He, he could have made us and walked away and remain in shadow, obscurity, and darkness, giving us no knowledge of himself. However, he has given us not only knowledge of himself in creation, which we call general revelation, but he has also given us his word. Our God is not silent. Though we may not see him, we hear from him in his word. End quote. So Dr. Spall is reminding us, God has made himself known. He has revealed himself in Jesus Christ and in his word. And that's how we get to know him, to meet him, to have the true knowledge that leads to life. 
It is God then who called us unto salvation. Salvation is God's work from beginning to end. Believers are elect, living stones, and we have a great calling of God in our lives to bring Him praise and glory. To proclaim with our lives His glory and excellence, as we saw in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. And it is because His divine power that we have everything we need. In essence, we have been granted everything we need for godly and abundant living. One of my former pastors loved to say that when God says all, he does not mean some. So again, we have everything. We have been granted everything we need for godly and abundant living. In his Bible commentary, Dr. John MacArthur comments on the meaning of this phrase. He says, quote, The genuine Christian is eternally secure in his salvation and will persevere and grow because he has received everything necessary to sustain eternal life through Christ's power. To be godly is to live reverently, loyally, and obediently toward God. Peter means that the genuine believer ought not to ask God for something more, as if something necessary to sustain his growth, strength, and perseverance was missing. To become godly, because he has already has every spiritual resource to manifest, sustain, and perfect godly living. End quote. Here, Peter says, we have everything we need to live in the here and now and to do it in a way that pleases God. What could everything mean? I can think of a few things we have. We have the indwelling of his Holy Spirit to guide us and to empower us. We have his holy word to illuminate our path. We have his church, the fellowship of the saints. We don't get to do this alone. We have his promises for a glorious future with him. And in verse 4, he tells us through this, his knowledge, his glory, his excellence, God has granted believers his precious and magnificent promises. God is the original and the only promise keeper with a 100% track record. In Christ, we have been granted all of God's promises. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 19. For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no, but has been yes in him. For as many as the promises of God are, in him they are yes. Therefore, through him also is our amen to the glory of God through us. 2 Corinthians 1, 19 and 20. By these promises, we can then become partakers of the divine nature and will be able to escape the corruption of this world, which is driven by lust. You see, when you become a believer, you are a new creation in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Ephesians 4, 22-24, and Colossians 3, 8-12. However, you will still struggle with your own nature, the flesh, as Paul tells us in Romans 7 and Galatians 5. It's one of those situations where you have an already but not yet moment. Remember that our salvation occurs in three stages, 
In the past, in our justification, we were saved from the penalty of sin. In the present, in our sanctification, we are being saved from the power of sin. And in the future, in our glorification, we will be saved from the presence of sin forever. One day, we will be transformed, glorified. That process of becoming all God intended for us to be, will be finished. We will be like him, like Christ. We, we read about that in 1 Corinthians 15, 50-53, Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21, and 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. So, that's what we're looking forward to. In the meantime, if you're a believer, and if you're still here in this world, you are, and I am, in stage 2. The battle between the spirit and the flesh we face is part of that sanctification process. In his Bible commentary, Dr. Tony Evans speaks about how our divine nature is implanted in us in seed form. He says, quote, Yet the divine nature is implanted in seed form and doesn't immediately translate into mature, godly living. Rather, it gives every Christian the potential to escape the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. Much like a seed gives the person who possesses it the potential to grow a plant. When the seed is tended and grows, the life of the spirit expands in a believer's soul and the expansion is manifested in the body through righteous living. End quote. But by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us, by us surrendering to him, we can live victorious lives, godly lives, until that glorious day of Christ's return and our entrance into eternity. We can conquer the power of sin in our lives. Paul talks about it in Romans 6 and Romans 13. It is the Spirit of God that enables us to live full godly lives. In his Bible study on 2 Peter, Dr. N.T. Wright speaks about why we should put effort towards escaping the corruption in this world. He says, quote, Running away from the lust of the flesh isn't a negative thing, despite what people will frantically tell you today. Lust is a drug. Like all drugs, it demands more and more, but gives less and less. It turns people into shadows of real human beings. Like shady financial dealings, it corrupts. It does to the moral fiber what cancer does to physical cells. Peter urges his readers to go in the opposite direction. End quote. In our next episode, we will talk more about our responsibility to respond to this great redemption. We have everything. We have been granted everything to life and godliness. And in our second division, we will look at what Peter encourages us to do to live fruitful lives. In the meantime, do you understand how God has empowered, equipped, and enabled you to live a full, godly life for his glory? This is the end of our first division in 2 Peter 1. What's our principle? In Christ alone, God has provided all we need to live full, godly lives. In Christ alone, God has provided all we need to live full, 
godly lives. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and in a godly manner in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, eager for good deeds. Titus 2, 11-14 Knowing God has given you everything you need in Christ to live a full godly life, how are you challenged or comforted? This concludes part one of our teaching from 2 Peter chapter 1. Thank you for being here today. Next time we will focus on our second division, called to Fruitful Lives, from verses 5 through 11. Until then, this is Jose Figueroa for an approved workman, where we are rightly dividing the world.